pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip, the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. I am your host, Nicole Davis. So this is the final episode of season four, which I started back in March, and I mean, I honestly have no idea where the time has gone. The fact that it's the end of June is wild. There will be a couple of bonus episodes coming out to coincide with some film releases, uh, so that's quite exciting. Uh, But apart from that, I'll be on hiatus for a couple of months, uh, figuring out and planning for season five. But I do feel like I'm going out with a bang. The season has been a real treat, you know, just overall all the all the guests I've spoken to have been yeah really really amazing and I think I've had some really fun but also important conversations and that trend is definitely continuing with this episode in which I spoke to Mandy Chang who is currently the commissioning editor at the BBC's feature documentary strand Storyville. Mandy has been on my radar for several years I've seen her speak at Sheffield Docfest um, and I've watched many of the films she's commissioned and executive produced and I was incredibly excited when she said yes to being interviewed. I knew it would be one of those interviews where an hour, hour and a half is just simply not enough time to ask all the right questions and I'm sure there are plenty of other paths that we could have gone down Uh, but what you're about to hear is the conversation that we did have and I found it to be as thoughtful and illuminating as I had hoped. Mandy started out as a freelance filmmaker, producing and directing docs for TV. Her credits include The Mona Lisa Curse, an Emmy and Grierson award-winning polemic that traces the pernicious rise of the art market, and The Camera That Changed the World, a portrait of the first portable cameras and the impact they had on filmmaking and filmmakers. Mandy was later head of arts at ABC TV, a broadcaster in Australia, before joining Storyville in 2017. During her time there, she has shepherded many incredible documentaries to our screens, Among them are Under the Wire, One Child Nation, Cold Case Hammerschold, Into the Storm, I Am Greta and the upcoming Misha and the Wolves. And she's just been announced as the new global head of documentaries at Fremantle, where she will spearhead the producer-distributor's growth in high-end factual production. We talked about her filmmaking career and how she sustained that for two decades, as well as how those experiences have informed her approach to commissioning. We discuss how she built on Storyville's legacy whilst also pushing it in new and bold directions, why caretaking is a central part of her commissioning philosophy and what that means, and what excites her about the future of documentary. I will say that, again, this is on Zoom, there are occasional um, background noises, uh, dog background noises, Um, but I hope you enjoy the episode anyway. I I think Mandy was really generous with her answers, and, you know, I certainly certainly got a lot from hearing about her career journey, so I hope you do as well. This is episode 89 of Best Girl Grip. Where I always tend to like to start is in the higher education realm, just because I think that's maybe where we often get a first first glimpse of what we want to be when we grow up, so to speak. So I'm wondering where you went to university, if in fact you did, and what you studied there. So I went to university in a place that probably no one in this country has heard of. It was called the New South Wales University of Technology, and I did a BA in arts and media. And today it's kind of one of the most sought after courses to learn about filmmaking because it combines practical filmmaking courses with an arts degree. But back then it was it was run by a bunch of misfits and communists and left-wing socialists. And that was brilliant for me because I was incredibly naive and apolitical when I left school and it totally politicised me and introduced me to radical ideas that I'd never really come across and and also to mature age students who were much more motivated than people like me coming straight out of school to dive into that world of the arts and filmmaking. And so I learned a lot from them. And I I did the course because I really wanted to study things like journalism and English literature, but I loved the idea of doing film studies. So I did practical courses in filmmaking and TV and radio, and I made brilliant friends for life there. I still think the best form of learning, if you want to get into this industry, is is just the practical experience of, of making films. But I'm really glad that I did my time at university because it gave me an opportunity to kind of grow up to learn how to write and to think and to get along with people who weren't like me and weren't from my world. 
And did you have a specific sense of a career that you wanted to pursue? I'm also wondering if the radicalism perhaps informed, you know, what you wanted to do afterwards and whether it broadened your ideas of what was possible. I mean, I've always been a bit of a bomb thrower. <laughs> I, li- I like provocation and challenge. And it's probably it's probably a theme in my life and my career. And I, I did know that I wanted to work in film when I left. I didn't know I wanted to work in documentaries because I started out in feature films and dramas but it it took me a while to find documentaries because I'm one of those people who wants to try everything and when I did discover documentaries what I loved about it was the small teams the intense research meeting real people and the stories of real people and diving into other worlds but other real worlds and learning about random subjects I knew nothing about And, you know, the thing about dramas and films is, you know, it's really big team. I had, you know, I had done a little bit of that when I first finished university and just I found the big teams and, the you know, it it just it was like a huge machine. And I just didn't it wasn't as much of a moment of discovery as when I first discovered the joy of documentaries. Can you talk about that moment of discovery? What led you to finding out about documentaries and then working in them? I did try everything because, as I said, I'm a curious person and I'd worked in advertising. I worked on feature films, drama series. I worked for a writer's agent in casting and I'd worked for an animation company, Passion Pictures, which which ironically ended up becoming a a documentary production company as well. And I worked on the pilot of Have I Got News For You? So I worked in comedy and then another mad show with spitting image puppets called Round the Bend. And then I went for a a job interview with three really brilliant documentary filmmakers who'd started a production company and they'd all come from the BBC and they were science directors. And science really, really wasn't my thing. But they made an amazing diversity of award-winning films and kind of different films. One of them was a really good storyteller. One of them was just incredibly creative and visually dexterous. And the other guy was was brilliant at observational filmmaking. And I just immersed myself in all of the stuff they made. And I did everything in the company. I was a PA. I was a production manager. I was a researcher. I was an AP. But I kind of knew I wanted more. I, I knew that I wanted to direct. And I had a creative itch that I wanted to scratch. And I knew that it was going to take me a lot longer to do it in that company than it was if I left and kind of started afresh and mm. wasn't seen in all those roles. And I, and I think that happens a lot to women. I, I really do. And, you know, I could see all these boys fast tracking past me and I just thought, I've, I've got to get out of here. I've got to take the leap and go and do something on my own terms if I want to go and direct and if I want to do it quickly because the years were ticking by and it was like, hurry up, Mandy. Mm. What did taking that leap look like? How did you create the opportunity for yourself to direct? So I went for, well, I I was yearning for this to have more responsibility, to have more creative input, and I wanted to tell my own stories and I knew science wasn't my thing, although I now, now really love science. But I had seen, I was a big fan of BBC Arena, which was the arts and culture strand. And I loved the arts and humanities and history stories, especially in those films and that kind of storytelling, because it was quite audacious storytelling. And I wanted to spread my wings and direct. So I went for a job as a BBC tap on a two-year intensive course within music and arts. And, you know, basically you're given the skills to direct, you're given mentors. And so I went through that kind of whole process of what somebody aptly called going through the eye of the needle. And I found myself being a tap. And so for that two years I I spent in music and arts, I I worked in arena in my kind of dream place. I used to spend hours and hours and hours at night. I'd book out a Steenbeck and book out these 16 mil films and sit there watching every arena that had ever been made. And I I worked on The Late Show as well. I mean, I worked in different places in music and arts, which was a kind of great grounding. And arena was one of the reasons that I wanted to make documentaries because I saw that you could make films and stories about things in a really different way, in a more creative way, in a more provocative and excitingly visual way. And that You know, I mean, I guess that's why I wanted to be there learning from those people. And it was towards the end of the the kind of when Arena was a big, 
you know, it was, they were big teams and they were really churning out the docs. But I got to work with Anthony Wall, who's a really, was a really inspiring producer. And I learned a huge amount as a, as a tap and got sent on training courses and, and started making my first, directing my first films, which were short films. But, you know, I went on from there. I'm one of those people who, as I say, did everything. And, you know, I tried everything, but I also tried everything in directing. I started off with short films, then I moved on to half hour films, then I moved to one hour films, and then I moved on to series and I moved on to feature docs, long form films. And by then I was kind of looking for the next challenge. I'm wondering how hard it was to sustain that career in filmmaking, though, and how much you were having to graft to create the opportunities for yourself or perhaps once you'd established a reputation or a bit of momentum, whether they started coming to you. I mean, it's a long, hard road, I think. And I didn't want to stay inside the BBC making films to order and always feeling like a junior director because, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd done a whole range of kind of short form films and I was ready. I felt ready to make something longer. But I also wanted that freedom to work on my own ideas and to have the kind of freedom that you have as a freelancer to pick and choose and in a way shape your own destiny. And so I applied for this documentary strand, half hour documentary strand called Metroland, which was which was a wonderful little strand where lots of filmmakers who are now in this business really successful got their first break. And it was a kind of eclectic half hour series and they would take on six filmmakers in a run and then you know you'd get all sorts of training and have people like Paul Watson coming in to talk to you or Peter Dale coming in to talk to you slightly terrifying people and and you there was a lot of support around those films and you got to make your I got to make my first half hour there it was a film about the fashion students at St Martin's uh, Central College of Fashion and I, I learned an awful lot from making that film and got a lot of support. And it's funny because I saw the footage recently in the Alexander McQueen film, just some of the students, because they wanted they wanted footage of students. And, and mm. I guess they, they somehow found the film. I've seen some of my footage in Adam Curtis's films as well, which is always a thrill. But I think for women, especially making the transition to being a director and working on the kind of films you want to make can be really tough and frustrating because I think men get an easier ride and still do. And I think women have to work that much harder to prove themselves. And they don't have the same confidence that a lot of the men do. And so they, I think women hold back a lot. There's so many more women in the industry and there's women like me in these roles. And yet, yet women are still don't have the same level of confidence as a lot of the boys do. I think it is tough. And And the way I managed to kind of survive was by getting these half-hour directing gigs and doing APing jobs at the same time. But I I had a bit of a golden rule, which was that I was only going to work with the best directors and to work with generous ones too so that I Mm -hmm. could really learn from them. But then I also realised that I had to be quite vocal about the fact of letting people know that I wanted to direct because if people don't know what you want to do, they're never going to give you a break. And and it took me a while to kind of work that out. And these directors that I worked with, I learned a lot just from watching and listening to them. And the buck didn't stop with me, which made it great. And then I also learned from their mistakes and I learned from their brilliance. And they were generous enough to let me direct some of their films to input creative ideas. And it was at the point that I'd be watching them and thinking, oh, I wouldn't do it like that. I'd do it really differently. And I realised I'm, I'm ready to do these bigger films. So the next big film that I did, well, you know, I went on doing a few more half-hour films and then... And then I got two one-hour films, one about the culture of madness and one about the culture of celebrity, which was absolute trial by fire because those films were just incredibly difficult to make. And they were my first films. And, you know, I want really wanted to succeed. And it was tough. It's tough making your first one-hour films. And I, I guess I carried on from there. You know, once you make that that first longer form film, you know, you're looking for the next challenge. And I think going from challenge to challenge was really 
important to me and making different kind, telling different kind of stories and making different kinds of films and different genres was really important because I didn't want to be pigeonholed because I didn't yet know what path I wanted to take. I was very interested in arts and cultural stories. And, you know, I made biographical films, historical films, presenter-led films, and I made observational films. And part of that was because I wanted to challenge myself doing different things and learning different things. And part of that was to not go down a path where I was going to be seen as this kind of filmmaker or that kind of filmmaker. You know, most of my career, I haven't had a master plan. I've just kind of gone from doing one, one different thing to another. And as I've gone, I've grown, taken on more responsibility, found what I've loved. And then I went to being a series producer and an executive producer while I was still making films. And the last film I made was a feature-length film for Channel 4 called The Mona Lisa Curse. And by then I'd had a baby and I naively thought I would never make anything good again. (laughs) But it turned out to be my most successful film. And I think the trajectory of my career is about challenge and pushing myself and learning more things. And of course, as you do this, you you do master new skills and you find yourself moving into roles with more responsibility. But I would never want to move away from filmmaking or climb a greasy pole of power. That's just not me. I mean, one of my questions was going to be whose stories are you interested in telling? But I think you sort of touched on it there and, and spoke to the, the the broadness of your interests. And so I'm perhaps wondering if the better question, and, and you raised this point about confidence, is how do you build up the confidence to tell that person's story and to to tell it correctly you know how do you approach Mm. a subject to to know that you have the knowledge or the skills in order to tell that story in the way that you want to I mean I think it is approaching approaching a story and having the confidence to tell it is about a lot about experience and trying different things and and trial and error making mistakes learning from mistakes working with different people because we talk about altered films a lot, but actually I think it takes a it does take a village to make a film. And you know, if a film is never about one person, it's about a collaboration of people. And I think the the more experience you get, the more confident you get. And the more you learn to trust your instincts. The older I've got, the more I've learned to trust my instincts and and learn that actually most of the time my instincts are right. Some people do that earlier and some people do that later. And I think it's also about knowing what you want to do and working out what you want to do and but also what you're good at because there's that thing of everybody wants to be a director but not everybody can be a director. Not everybody has the skills to be a director. So it's it's really working out what your strengths are and what you love and following that path. I've always been interested in feature documentaries. I've always watched and loved feature documentaries. But the investigative side of going deep into a story and or or whether that be a human story or or an investigation or a kind of geopolitical film it's that diving into the deep detail and getting very deep access combined with those cinematic types of stories that have a special quality that is something different from the kind of domestic documentaries that you see on TV. What is what Kevin Sim, the director, calls the poetry, the bit that has nothing to do with basic narrative or character development, but is about that special combination of elements put together and about a certain sensibility that's the sum of the parts and the sum of people's creative skills all working together. Is there a project that you're proudest of having directed that you see as having that poetry? Yes. In terms of the films that I've made, there are three films that are special for me. One of them is a film I made about art and money called The Mona Lisa Curse because I poured into it so much of what I've learned and and because I made it against a lot of odds and because it was a provocative piece that threw bombs at certain people in the art world and it was banned from being shown in America by some very influential people, which, of course, gives me great pleasure. <laughs> um, and it helps that it went on to win a lot of awards, including an International Emmy and a Grierson and a 
rose door and a Banff Grand Jury Prize and that that's like a confirmation that something that you thought was the right thing at the time because I was told it was a failure when I was in the cutting room isn't mm-hmm. isn't a failure it's something really good and that you know those instincts about coming back to those instincts those instincts about what I was doing were right and then I made a film with Christopher Hitchens about George Bush's Texas which told you a lot about America and the way he was running it at the time and I adored working with Hitch because he's the most one of the most, he was one of the most clever people I've ever met and diving deep into American culture and politics. And then another film I made, The Camera That Changed the World, about the birth of the handheld sync sound camera, was just a joy to make because it was about the history of making documentaries, the history of my own field of of endeavour, and it indulged me in the opportunity to dive into a world where what I do came from and to watch a lot of classic documentaries Mm. that I otherwise would never have had time to watch. Perhaps it comes back to the instinct thing, but I'm intrigued as to who was telling you that the Mona Lisa curse was a failure and how you resolved not to listen to them. Oh, my God, I could get into such trouble for this. <laughs> Someone who was involved in the editorial process, mm. you know, I was working with a brilliant, brilliant editor who really, you know, it was him and me that making the film was really, really hard because, you know, we're making it with Robert Hughes, who was elderly and not very well. And it was a provocative film. So there was a lot of sneaking about and it was tough. The whole, the whole shooting was really tough and I was really pushing myself and I had a little kid at home and and I was in that mindset of I'm never going to make another good film again so I've put a lot of pressure on myself and then in the cutting room it was me and him shaping the film with very little help from the outside and then to be to be told that your film is a failure is absolutely devastating and we didn't think it was you know we thought it was a really interesting story about our times and about the art world and and it was making comment about that and it was provocative and it was compelling in its in its thesis and i mean that turned out to be right but to be told that your film is a failure is 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 a quite a devastating thing and actually gregor my editor's response to that was to say well we just have to we just have to make the best film ever and win awards and and make sure that that film stands head and shoulders above the rest and that's what we did and I'm really proud of that because it was it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster and falling out with people over things like that wasn't fun and even getting the awards was slightly bittersweet because I'd had such a tough experience making the film and so in a way that was that was kind of surreal when it when it won the awards and then I'm wondering if that kind of opinion of of failure and you know by whose standards whether that informed your decision to transition to commissioning you know to be someone involved in the process that was perhaps more supportive or nurturing than that what was what was the process behind that decision? It wasn't really about that because I'm quite a resilient person and I'm very mm. good at picking myself up and dusting myself off and and moving on. But I think the decision, the transition to commissioning, was more of a pra- practical than a career plan because I had a seven year old and I really wanted to go back to Australia for a while so that she could have an experience growing up there, mm. getting to know cousins and uncles and aunts and grandparents and having freedom and sunshine and sea. And there was a commissioning job going at the ABC, which is the Australian national broadcaster. And it was a, a job as the commissioning editor for music and arts in, the, in that department. And I thought I would go for it because I didn't want the uncertainty of being a freelance director in Australia. And I, I just thought, oh, well, I'll see how far I can go. And I got the job. You know, I, I, I completely surprised myself. And in a way, it was a completely fantastic apprenticeship for the Storyville role. And I discovered that I really loved commissioning because I wasn't sure. And I loved collaborating with the filmmakers and curating a strand of films. And I, and I was also, I was lucky enough to run a, slightly experimental online channel so that was that was a fantastic experience as well and and then I got breast cancer and had a horrible year but that kind of crystallized my thinking even further Mm. about 
what I wanted. And at that stage, the head of arts was leaving and I decided I wanted to go for the head of arts job. Someone had been put in place who just, she just kind of got given the job and I made a big fuss and said, you know, you can't just give those jobs. Those jobs have to be earned and you should advertise the job and I'm going to go for it. Because because at that stage, it was like, I did want to, I did want to carry on exploring this thing of curating a, a slate of films and strategizing a strand or a department and the whole big picture aspect of that. And I felt like I hadn't, you know, because I've always thought one day I'll go back to filmmaking, but I, but I haven't, I hadn't quite finished with that side of things yet. So I went for the head of arts job and I, and I got it and I loved it. And then, and then the Storyville job came along. And then I'm wondering if you think that your experiences as a filmmaker influenced your approach to commissioning and if so, in, in what ways? I think definitely my experience as a filmmaker has influenced my approach to commissioning. I spent years as a director honing my skills in constructing films visually and conceptually and in in the cutting room and in learning the importance of really basic things like character development, weaving a narrative arc, creating atmosphere and emotion and drawing the big picture out of a small emblematic story. And that really was a great apprenticeship for being a commissioner. And anyone can see, I mean, most people can see a problem with a film, but not everybody knows how to find the solutions to those problems. And I think being a director really helps you do that. And having been a filmmaker really, I think, gave me the respect of other filmmakers because they knew that I understood where they were coming from. Sometimes when they were being difficult, I understood that that was because, you know, filmmakers have a vision and they're just trying to express their vision and they get they get very single-minded about that. And just having a lot of experience working on films with different people, different commissioners and different production companies gives you the confidence to trust your own judgment and having judgment is what is is what being a commissioner is about. And then obviously you raised um, BBC Storyville there. And so I'm wondering how that opportunity arose. And given that you've moved back to Australia for practical reasons, I'm wondering if it felt like a risk to then come back to London to take on that job. I'd known Nick Fraser for a long time. Nick had been running Storyville for 20 years before he left, 20 years or more. And we talked about making a Storyville and I was a huge fan of Storyville. And, you know, Nick was obsessed with people like Rupert Murdoch and was would occasionally ring me and say, Mandy, you should make a film about Rupert Murdoch. And and somehow the opportunity to do that never arose, but I stayed friends with Nick and I would travel back to London with him from Sheffield and we'd, we'd have these fantastic conversations about politics and arts and and you know those conversations would kind of leave off and then they'd continue again when I saw him and then when I became the commissioning editor at the ABC I co-produced some films with Kate and Nick and I had produced a, a, a Storyville a long time before then so Storyville was always on my radar it was kind of a dream job that was out of my reach and I, mm. I, I kind of didn't think about it and got on with the rest of my career making films and doing other things and I got to know Kate really well because by then Nick had left when we were co-producing some films and Kate and I just had a really lovely collaboration and we were both very aligned in our thinking and when Nick left Storyville and then Kate was leaving Storyville to go to Netflix she called me to say she thought I should apply for the role and you know classic woman thing thinking no i'm i'm not i'm not good enough they're not going to give me the job because i've been in hicktown australia and you know that it'll go to someone in the uk who's got way more experience than me and i just didn't think they would take me seriously so i didn't i didn't apply ridiculously even though it was my dream job and kate kind of kept at me she must have mentioned my name to the BBC because they went through the whole interview process and they clearly didn't find the person who was right for the job mm. and then one day out of the blue Claire Sillery rang me and asked me if I was interested in applying for the Storyville job and of course I said yes I jumped at the opportunity so with barely any time to prepare, I did a panel interview, I think it was on a Friday, and then they told me that they would tell me if I'd got the job or not on a Monday. And I did the interview at 12 o'clock at night because, you know, they'd said to me three o'clock in the afternoon, I said, is that my time or your time? They said, our time. <laughs> 
o'clock, it was 12 o'clock at night. And by one o'clock in the morning, I, after being kind of grilled and, and having the adrenaline pumping through me, mm. I was absolutely exhausted and I couldn't answer the last question. I said, I'm really sorry, I'm going to have to go to bed. And they were like, Mandy, what time is it? And I said, it's, it's, it's 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> Meanwhile, at the ABC, I'd been I'd been offered a really big job running music and arts and natural history and science and religion and you know it was a whole kind of the specialist factual side of things, and you know I didn't even think twice about it because I did not want the grand job. I I didn't. I've never wanted to climb a greasy pole. I wanted to be close to the filmmakers and the filmmaking, and I totally saw my future as being in a global space rather than a national one. And I wanted to work on feature documentaries. So I found myself heading back to the UK with my family to start the job at Storyville. Obviously a very exciting opportunity. And I, I'm really interested in how you, with a brand like Storyville that you know is very established and has a legacy, how do you balance those two kind of remits of carrying that forth, but then also taking it in kind of new and surprising directions and, and sort of marking the, the reign, if that's not too grandiose a term, of, of you know, your tenure? So, of course, I inherited an amazing legacy going into Storyville and it's very daunting following in the footsteps of Nick Fraser because, you know, over many years I'd admired, loved, watched watched again so many of those Storyvilles. And, you know, what I really wanted to do was build on that legacy, but I also wanted to forge my own path and build my own legacy. And times have really changed since Nick left Storyville. By the time I was running Storyville, it was a completely different landscape because Nick had had the pick of all the best projects. And by the time I got there and got my feet under the table, the competition and the market for feature docs had become so intense. So I realised quite quickly that I was going to have to be really nimble footed Mm -hmm. about how to build a strand of high quality feature documentaries. And I wanted to commission provocative and challenging films in the you know, in the vein of the kind of films I've always loved and the kind of films I've always wanted to make. And I wanted to find more filmmakers making films in other places where traditionally male white filmmakers had gone in to cover stories. So I wanted to see African filmmaking and Middle Eastern filmmakers and Indian filmmakers making films about the places they come from. And while still having that outsider perspective, because I think perspective is still really important, but I was interested in a much greater diversity of nationalities and cultures and of women's perspectives and probably of less American films, although we still show a lot of American stories because so many great films still come out of that country. And at the last count, 40% of our co-pros were made by new feature documentary filmmakers. So obviously I was interested in that. And, you know, I'm, I'm, that's one of the things I'm very proud of is having brought new voices and new talent into the BBC documentary community. And then a twofold question to kind of follow up on that. You know, you've spoken about this idea of, of provocation and risk taking. I'm wondering if you felt supported in taking those risks and, you know, there were the people and the, the money behind you to kind of allow you to do that. But then also, again, how, how did you trust that that risk was going to pay off? Well, you know what? There were people at the BBC who were who have been really worried about the risks of some of the decisions I've made. But then there were there have been others like Charlotte Moore, who's the head of all content, or the head of complaints. I mean, really unlikely people like the head of complaints, Claire Powell, or my lawyer at Storyville, Lucy Mormon, or my editorial policy person, Sue Pennington, who you wouldn't think would be supportive, but who understood that this was what Storyville was all about and have always been incredibly supportive and and even relished the challenging films that came in and and kind of worked side by side with me at the coalface to make them work legally and editorially. And Charlotte has always been amazingly supportive of Storyville. I think loves the fact that I've taken on all these provocative, challenging films. And, you know, whenever I've, I've asked for her help, we had a parliamentary screening of Welcome to Chechnya. I asked Charlotte if she could help me get Stephen Fry and she was you know she was in there writing emails watching the film and and made that happen and she's always been like that from from the get-go and I think you need champions that support risk if you're working in a role like this and those people trusted me and supported me to make controversial films that provoke and surprise and push the boundaries of form and content and I'll forever be grateful to them. 
it's always the bad stories about the BBC that get out there, but the mm-hmm. remarkable support inside the commissioners and filmmakers has meant that Strands like Storyville can make films right at the cutting edge. And I've had a huge amount of support and advice along the way. And then, you know, people like Cassian Harrison, who was the controller of BBC4 when I first started, completely trusted me to get on with it and provided support when when he thought I needed it, but never interfered in, you know, what I was doing day to day at the coalface. And and also I think I think it's fair to say that like all commissioners, I do agonize about what films to commission, but I do have a I do have that healthy trust in my own instinct that's born out of experience. And I do put films through their paces to ensure we're only getting the best ones. And, you know, that's totally necessary when you're working with first-time filmmakers and with mm-hmm. filmmakers who want to try something new. I've also seen you um, speak quite a lot about care and that being, you know, an important part of, of your process and perhaps your philosophy. I'm wondering, you know, if you can expand on what you mean by that. What does it mean to kind of take care of a filmmaker? Mm. So care, I think the care, looking after filmmakers is kind of one of the central, has been one of the central tenets of my time as a commissioner. And it's maybe it's because it's something I didn't always have as a director and a producer. So I'm acutely aware of it and of how hard it is to, to make a film. And it means giving filmmakers support to realise their vision, whether that's editorial support, pastoral support, or in the ideas stage or in the cutting room or helping solve problems or helping people to understand the audience perspective or issues that could arise that could put them in danger legally or otherwise. I think a lot of budgets have become really overbloated and having a big budget doesn't necessarily mean you're going to make a brilliant film. But if a filmmaker needed another month in the cutting room and the money is there, I would always make it available. And recently we had a we had a film that was picture locked, but the story kept evolving and growing. So I agreed that we should open up the film and do more shooting and cutting to make the film better. And it's always about that. And I think filmmakers really, really appreciate that kind of support. And I hope they also appreciate the support we've given in helping people raise their budgets or putting in inexperienced people together with seasoned teams who can provide editing or execing support. And then just going back to vision, it's about trying to understand a director's vision and to help find ways to achieve that. I think some commissioners and execs sometimes kind of think directors can be really difficult or stubborn, digging their heels in. And a lot of creative people, I think I said this before, are are very single-minded about achieving their vision. And there's a lot of obstacles to overcome when you're making a film. So they get bloody-minded about things. And it's about understanding that it's not just about them being difficult or stubborn it's about it's about them it's about the vision they have for their film and like a production has a duty of care to contributors I think I have a duty of care to the filmmakers making the film and especially first-time filmmakers because they are the lifeblood of the industry and without them the industry can't continue to grow and change there wouldn't be an industry and that means spending a whole lot more time shepherding them through the process encouraging them and helping them to avoid the common pitfalls that we've all made in the past and teaming them up with good people. And I don't expect the films made by them to be any less excellent than the ones that experienced people make. And that means pushing them harder and investing more time and energy to make sure they succeed. And I guess that's what I mean by care. You touched on earlier about how the documentary landscape has changed and it's become much more competitive. There are many more players in the market. And I've, I've heard you spoke about needing to keep the documentary ecosystem healthy. What do you mean by that? And how do you go about doing that? So I think if you're if you're running a strand, I mean I'm I'm not I'm not into the idea of it all at all of following the same successful formula. I like to change it up all the time, and and I think it's about if if from my perspective as a commissioner about being distinctive, about excellence and being distinctive. And you know I I started off at Storyville feeling quite competitive with you know the streamers and 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 quite jealous of all their money, and then I realised that you know. I could forge my own path and that there was a space for all of us and that all all these new players in the game were really good for filmmakers because they were giving them a living, they were providing them with a living and that all that money that Netflix or Amazon or 
Apple have or or even HBO, you know, that that gives them the money to make their films and make them in a really in in a way where they can they can have all the tools of filmmaking and have the time they need and have the time in the edit. And my challenge has has always been I've got to find help them find the money to get to those budget levels. But also I can the diversity of the films on Storyville is so is so much broader than anywhere anywhere else at the moment where feature films are being made. And that is such an opportunity for me because it it mean it means I can be distinctive. You know, the one of the things I noticed when I went to Sundance this year is that there weren't as many political films as there normally are. And I think some of those streamers have have been a bit shy about those political stories, but it means I can dive right into them and kind of get as political as I want. Or, you know, that the the remit is wide open to me to to work with those filmmakers who want to tell those stories. And and that point of difference is part of an ecosystem that, you know, that we all have. And I, you know, I'm someone from a streamer said we're all chasing the same thing. And I don't feel like that at Storyville. I never have. I'm not chasing any of the same things that they are because, you know, because films about celebrities and things are big celebrities are, are out of my reach. But I have this incredible diversity of filmmaking. And, and that's what I mean about the ecosystem, that there are different ways of making films and different platforms. And that's an amazing thing for the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like keeping the biodiversity of documentary alive and well. And then obviously, you know, I don't think anyone would uh, argue that documentaries are a labour of love. They just are. They often take a lot of time and effort and energy to make. I'm wondering how you keep that love replenished and how you, you within yourself find the motivation to kind of keep fighting or, as you say, championing these storytellers. I think it's because I have an endless fascination for stories Stories are, you know, storytelling is is an ancient art form and the endless ways that you can tell stories is endlessly fascinating. And I love working with different people. I never tire of the insights or the emotional and intellectual ride that you can get from a documentary made by passionate and committed filmmakers. And their gratitude for your commitment and passion is also, you know, something that motivates me hugely. And finding new talent is incredibly exciting. And the idea of kind of carrying on a relationship with that new talent and continuing to push people and and challenge them in new ways and see them growing as filmmakers is the best thing. I get excited by filmmakers who think outside the box and who want to reinvent the form and who have the skills and talent to pull that off. And I love films made over long periods of time where you can see real change and narrative development. And then I love pure observational films that are able to grip and hold you for 90 minutes. And that goes on, it goes on. And, you know, new people come into the game and it, the biodiversity of filmmakers and the, the global reach of documentaries is, is growing. And that's really exciting as well to me. Conversely, I'm wondering what you find to be the hardest part of your job. It's hard saying no. Bureaucracy is hard and really irritating. Having a small budget is tough. Dealing with negative people is not, isn't great. And I think for Storyville and having been in Storyville, not having the same agency sometimes within the BBC as the fully funded docs has been hard at times and or getting proper traction on BBC4, you know, it just irritates the hell out of me when someone puts out one of our films at 10.40 at night, which is going on at the moment. And, and also just fighting wrong perceptions about Storyville. But, you know, I mean, being a commissioner is a constant fight and you have to... You have to just you, you have to be a fighter to be in these roles. I am that person. You know, I'm I'm a fighter and a warrior mm. and I enjoy the challenge of it all. And on that same kind of train of thought, I'm wondering if if there's a Storyville project that you, you know, particularly fought to get made or that you feel is especially representative of your kind of your approach to commissioning. There are so many. And the more controversial ones have probably been the trickiest. I I think the films are all gems in their own right, but the sum of the parts is very important because we run films as a strand and it's the mix of films that makes it special. I guess my favourite films are the ones with probably the strongest unfolding narratives, things like The Collective or Welcome to Chechnya. And and then other favourites are the ones that I've sweated blood over, which have had 
rocky rides but triumphed in the end. So films like Unlocked, Breaking the Silence, Sav Alford's film, um, and of course, you know, the films like First Time by First Time Filmmakers, like Into the Storm, because, you know, it's such a triumph when they make a film that stands up to the other ones. And they take a lot of work to realise. They always feel really triumphant. You know, the sense of achievement they get from that is infectious. Camilla Hall made a film about the island of Jersey, and that was a that was an incredibly challenging film to make legally and editorially, and you know she she sweated blood for that. So, you know those films are always stick in my mind because you know because we were all at the coalface with them. And then you know there are very special films like The Mole infiltrating North Korea, which was made by an audacious filmmaker called Mads Brueger with an absolutely fantastic team. And from the get-go when I started at Storyville, we were making his I mean I'd seen all of Mads films and I I love them. He's totally off the off the wall with the way that he makes films but they're full of intelligence and creative spice and amazing access and we made the cold case Hammershold together and grew this relationship and and then the the mole was in the making for 10 years so obviously I wasn't there for the whole of that but for most of my three years that I was at Storyville I worked on the mole with that team and it was such a fantastic relationship of ups and downs and frustrations and joys and and you know the film is a kind of mini masterpiece it's incredible and you know that my desire is to go on working with him because he's one of the most creative and talented directors I know the African film Softy that had a, an African director Sam Soko and and a, and, a, and a Kenyan producer they're special because again they're pushing they're pushing boundaries and that was a film that was made by Africans about Africa and it's you know it's just won another award it's and that makes me really proud and the fact that we got that film shown on Africa I it was translated into four African languages so it goes out to Africa and back mm-hmm. to the people who really need to be watching it that's a kind of point of pride the fact that welcome to Chechnya we showed that we we had a parliamentary screening for that and it as a result of that parliamentary screening the government put sanctions on Russia that kind of impact is something very special for me because it's it goes beyond Storyville to to something else to an impact that's that's even greater than just people watching a film and enjoying it or learning from it it makes a political impact and not very many films do that but when they do it's thrilling it kind of feels quite full circle from you know your your awakening your political awakening when you kind of went to university to kind of think about what you're doing now well we also have to talk about the fact that obviously it was recently announced that you're leaving Storyville to chart a new path at Fremantle and I'm wondering if you could talk about what prompted that decision and you know why why it perhaps felt like the right time for a change so you know it's quite it's quite conflicting leaving Storyville because I love it so much and I haven't left yet but (laughs) and these decisions when they come along are never easy but I come from a filmmaking background and you know I like a challenge because I've already said that and this is a new and different type of challenge and it's an opportunity to build something from the ground up it's an opportunity to build a slate of talent from the other side of the table and a slate of feature documentaries and high-end series, but to do it globally. And it means I can still work with Storyville, but it means that I can work with other broadcasters and other platforms in a different way. And I can build on what I've been doing at Storyville in a, in a slightly different way. And it, it it's taking me a little bit back to my filmmaking roots, which I'm really excited about. And, and it means I can still keep my hands on the filmmaking process and stay close to the filmmakers, which is what I want but it's a new challenge Mm, keeps you on your toes what excites you about the future of documentary the new and unexpected excites me that films can still push the boundaries of form and that there are still endless possibilities for storytelling and that people keep reinventing the form and finding new ways to tell age-old stories. And I think that's never really 
changed for me. I never really thought I'm bored of this. I know everything I need to know now and I'm ready to kind of move on because I'll I'll never know everything I need to know. And just that pure form of storytelling on film with the sound and the pictures and, and the way people come together and the serendipity of it is, is exciting and endless. And, you know, technology keeps changing as well. And I don't know what's going to happen next, but I feel like there, there will be more change and more. I mean, there is a rapid process of change going on in this industry I've never I've never seen the change so fast but it's not making the form any less there are so many exciting possibilities at the moment and let's see where that goes does the, the change make it hard to kind of keep up with trends or what you think audiences might want to be watching you know has it has it changed your approach to commissioning in any way yeah, it has because I think I think you have to be really nimble. I think you have to be get in there first and I you have to take more risks and taking risks is something I really enjoy doing and you've got to trust your instincts because if you wait till you're absolutely sure that something's going to be great, you've you've already been left behind. You know, I think I think change for the worst always falls away in the end anyway. There's more and more streamers and platforms coming into the market, but you know, ultimately, they can't all be sustained. And there's a re there'll be a rebalancing period where, you know, certain things come to the fore and other things recede. And, and that's the beauty of this industry that it never stops changing. Is there something that you consider to be the biggest learning curve of your career? Or, you know, perhaps something that maybe you'd wish that you'd learn earlier? I think, Every experience is a learning curve. Working at Storyville was a huge learning curve for me because I wasn't as in that global space as I am now. And I had to, I just had to kind of get out there and travel and meet as many people, filmmakers and broadcasters and funders as I could to to really get a, a sense of it globally and not just the UK side of it or, you know, I mean, the Australian side of it, but not just the UK side of it that I had to kind of embrace that all really quickly um so that that was a learning curve that kind of was as it was almost vertical and i wished i hadn't wasted so much time trying everything before finding documentaries but maybe i found them at a time in my life when i was ready for them and i really grew from all the other experiences in the other fields i'm a real believer that watching movies can enhance your documentary filmmaking skills and i'm talking about dramas as well as other documentaries but that looking at great art can lead to ideas or increase your activity and that opening yourself up to change and new experiences is not only good but essential. I'd love to know if there's a film by a woman filmmaker that you consider to be a bit of a hidden gem that you know you'd like more people to have seen. Yes there is there's a film called, one of my favourite films is a little half-hour film called Three Salons at the Seaside, and it's made by Philippa Lothorpe, who now makes dramas. And it's a 30-minute masterpiece about a little old lady's hairdressing salon by the seaside in, in one of those kind of really grim English seaside towns. It was made eons ago, but it's still an incredible film that's full of life and emotion and character, and it's it's perfectly crafted and conceived. And I think Philip is an amazing director who's gone on to make brilliant award-winning dramas, but that documentary has stayed with me for more than 20 years, and I, I would urge everyone to see it because it's just a little piece of perfectly crafted storytelling is hasn't really aged and shows you the possibilities of something small and perfectly formed that you know that we all really aspire to and that's that's why it's so beautiful and heartwarming and unforgettable thank you um yeah we'll definitely make an effort to check that out thank you so much for speaking with me today um i I have to say people always ask me who um who my dream guest on the the podcast would be and i have to say you've been high on the list of mine for a very long time so thank you so much it's been a real real pleasure so nice um yeah i love the fact that you made me think about my entire career really think deeply about what I do and why I do it I, you know because we don't often get the opportunity to do that so thank you um.